Good afternoon and thank you very much for coming. The situation in Argentina is not a happy one, to say the least. As you may remember, it was roughly 20 years ago when an attack on a prominent Jewish community center in Buenos Aires left 85 people dead, hundreds of, uh, of uh, wounded. It was the deadliest terrorist attack in Argentine history. It was also the worst act of anti-Semitic violence to occur after World War II. A dark prosecutor named Alberto Nisman investigated the crime for more than a decade, concluding that officials in the Iranian and Argentine governments, including Presidenta Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, concealed the origins of the attack in exchange for economic benefits. Mr. Nidman was murdered the day before he was scheduled to testify about his findings. Needless to say, this doesn't sound like the way a modern democracy is supposed to operate. Unfortunately, that's only the beginning. Argentina's economy is also in serious decline and still suffering from a slump in foreign investment after the failure to make debt repayments to American and other interest holders and creditors. Argentina will elect a new president this fall, and they will have their share of challenges. Fortunately, we have distinguished guests here to discuss the best way forward for this troubled yet very important country. Joining us first is uh, Mr. Dan Mariachin, the Executive Vice President of Nibirit International, whose support for this event is greatly appreciated. In our panel, we have none less than Hector Chamis, Professor at the Center for Latin American Studies at uh, Georgetown University. Dr. Shamis is a distinguished columnist for El País de Madrid. We're also joined by Gustavo Perenic, an author and lecturer emeritus at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Professor Perenic is a best-selling author, both in Spanish and English, and you can verify this by getting into the web with Amazon books. <laughs> And last but not least, we have Dr. Ruth Diamint, a professor at uh, Dorcuato de Tela University in Buenos Aires, and a fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy. I need to add that today's, that today's program was greatly improved yesterday, as I requested my colleague at Hudson and friend of many years, Dr. Chris Sands, to moderate the panel discussions. And without any further ado, I'll invite Mr. Mariachin to the podium. Thank you, Ambassador Darren Bloom. Uh, distinguished guests and panelists, uh, I uh, uh, want to say how uh, 
deeply appreciative we are for the opportunity to uh, uh, participate in and support uh, this important uh, event today at the Hudson Institute. Uh, B'nai B'rith is uh, widely known as a Jewish humanitarian, human rights, and advocacy organization. We have a presence worldwide, but we have an active presence in over 20 countries in the Western Hemisphere, including Mexico, Colombia, Uruguay, Venezuela, and of course, Argentina, where we established our first Latin American branch in Buenos Aires in 1930, 85 years ago. Throughout the region, we work to combat anti-Semitism, other forms of bigotry and tolerance, intolerance, confront anti-Israel bias, promote democratic values and respect for human rights, and provide humanitarian relief to the various countries' neediest populations. The recent developments in Argentina are of great concern to us. Argentina is the home of the largest Jewish community in Latin America, the third largest in the Americas after the United States and Canada, and the sixth largest in the world with approximately 250,000 Jews. And the Argentine Jewish community has been the target of two major terrorist attacks. Ambassador Darren Bloom talked about this. In April of 1992, the Israeli embassy was bombed, killing 32 people. And in 1994, a car bomb exploded in front of the AMIA building. AMIA is the main Jewish social service welfare organization in Argentina, uh, killing 87 people and wounding more than 100 others, as the ambassador said. And the bombing of AMIA was the worst terrorist attack ever committed against a Latin American country and the worst uh, anti-Semitic attack after World War II. The investigation of the AMIA attack languished for years until 2005, when former President Kirchner created a special investigative unit and named Alberto Nisman as its prosecutor. After a thorough investigation, Nisman accused several Iranian officials of having planned and executed the attack with the help of Hezbollah operatives. He was even able to secure Interpol arrest warrants for most of them. But the Iranian government has always refused to cooperate with the Argentine justice system in, in the person, in this case, of Alberto Nisman. In 2013, after years of actively and publicly supporting Nisman's investigation, the current government in Buenos Aires signed a controversial agreement with Iran known as the Memorandum of Understanding, by which a binational commission was supposed to be formed to reinvestigate the AMIA attack. The government justified the signing of this agreement and the need to advance uh, a case that was, in their words, paralyzed. Nisman was found dead in his apartment in January, just a few days after accusing the president or foreign minister and other members and allies of the government as having negotiated this agreement with Iran with the goal of getting, as the ambassador said, impunity for the accused in exchange for a trade deal that included oil. Nisman was found dead almost five months ago, and we still don't know what really happened to him. Now that he's no longer with us, the fate of the AMIA case itself is uncertain. As, this, as if all of this were not enough, we are also greatly concerned about a conspiracy theory as recently endorsed by at least one Argentine government website, according to which the most representative organizations of the Jewish community, AMIA and DAIA, allegedly acted in collusion with Nisman and the so-called vulture funds, uh, speculative funds that have been litigating against Argentina for years, 
to prevent a rapprochement between Argentina and Iran, quote, against the interest of the Argentine state. These types of anti-Semitic theories are quite dangerous and should have no place in a modern democratic society. Well, through this uh, meeting today, uh, we hope to be able to raise greater awareness about these troublesome developments, which deserve, as they will be, to be seriously analyzed. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador Derenblum and Mr. Mary Ashen, for setting a very, I think, sober but also serious tone for a very important discussion. I'm very pleased to be part of this panel. I don't really belong on a panel as distinguished as this, but uh, I'm still honored to be here. Let me turn first to uh, Professor Seamus to start us off. Okay. <clears throat> I stay here, right? Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you, Jaime, for... The invitation. It's always a pleasure to be here with you and all the people at Hudson. And uh, and I'm a little sort of uh, uh, concerned because <laughs> when I saw the invitation, the formal invitation yesterday in my email that I hadn't seen, I, I had it in my calendar, but when I saw the invitation, I saw that it said, you know, Argentina, blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, that's the title of the session. And so I said, well, uh, let me try to then put a few notes together trying to address the blood, the sweat, and the tears, that, uh, but also the hope, perhaps, if I may. Uh, we've had a, a bad government, uh, the longest in, in the country's history, by the way. There's only one other occasion in which uh, a president ruled 12 years, although this is not one president, but his husband and wife. Uh, it was the case of Roca in the 19th century, who was president two presidential terms, six years each, but with one in between. Uh, other than that, this is the longest. Is, is this working? It's not working, right? Okay, well. Uh, other than that, this has been uh, the Kirchner's uh, in office has been the longest period any president has been in power. Uh, and it's been a bad government that squandered years of unprecedentedly favorable terms of trade, uh, a prosperity that didn't tickle down anywhere, uh, an opportunity wasted to build institutions, democratic procedures, to build economic institutions for the future, to reduce poverty. The government doesn't know how many poor Argentina has. It's a country that re represents itself as defending the poor. It doesn't know how to measure poverty. Uh, an opportunity wasted to make uh, the economy competitive and integrated to the world, and, and let alone the tragedy of the AMIA case and all the reverberations in the future. The AMIA case didn't happen with the Kirchner's in power, but some of the worst uh, events associated with that at attack did happen under the Kirchner's. So let me say a little bit, uh, I don't want to say too much about, uh, let, me, let, me, let me address, as I said, the blood issue, which is the Nisman case. Um, the Nisman case, which initially generated uh, enormous concern in society, uh, uproar with people coming out on to the streets demanding justice, uh, but with uh, little, by, little by little began to be... Uh, pushed out of the agenda. Uh, the, as many of us have said, I said it myself in, in, in some uh, writings, 
uh, Nisman was killed twice, first by uh, whoever killed him, which is pretty much clear for everybody uh, objective on this, uh, and then he was killed by the government, while being already dead, but was killed by the government and all the, uh, the libel and the character assassination that the government, uh, campaign of character assassination that the government conducted from the very beginning. That, in a way, has paid off. Uh, Nisman is out of the public agenda. Lanata, Jorge Lanata's show came back a week ago uh, with a special on the Nisman case showing horrible things. And there's a lot more video there that was, was shown on TV. Uh, the contamination of the evidence, the a dialogue between uh, the, the undersecretary or secretary of uh, security and, and the prosecutor in the scene, uh, the weapon inside the bidet, uh, as you know, Argentine bathrooms do have bidets. Uh, and we don't know. Uh, we, well, we don't know what's going to happen with the issue, with the agenda. Uh, the Nisman's assassination has been, to some extent, successful and has been also overshadowed by the electoral season that Argentina is facing right now. Uh, That's with that with regards to blood. I don't want to say too much. Uh, I'm sure Gustavo is going to address some of those issues as well uh, on uh, Nisman, but that's that's pretty much the situation. Let me say something about the sweat. Uh, uh, sweat will come for the new government when trying to correct economic policy, economic domestic economic policy, and foreign economic policy. Uh, the country has inflation that has to be reduced. Uh, borrowing costs for Argentina are almost twice as much as for any of its neighbors. Uh, it has a very complicated foreign trade regime with all kinds of uh, tariff and non-tariff protections with a so-called CEPO, which is a mechanism of currency control that prevents importers from importing. Uh, and the threat will come also from uh, the necessity to reconstruct the state. Uh, the new government must reconstruct the state. The, the Kirchner government in 12 years has indeed destroyed the state. There is no central bank that conducts economic monetary policy in a reasonable way. Uh, there is no state agency uh, to measure statistics to provide, to produce and provide statistics. Uh, the government doesn't know inflation. The government lies about inflation. The government doesn't know about how to measure poverty. Uh, a once very professional and prestigious institution, the INDEC, National Institute for Statistics and Census, has been politicized to a point in which uh, it has become uh, a place for uh, political apparatchiks of the government, not for professionals who can do that job. Uh, the Foreign Service has been politicized uh, to an extent that has lost uh, uh, very valuable members of the Foreign Service, professional Foreign Service. Uh, and as the Nisman tapes revealed, the conduct of foreign policy has been outsourced to informals, let's put it that way, to shady characters who, as the Nisman tapes reveal, 
discuss foreign policy, realignment, memorandums of understanding, relationships with the world, uh, how to address Iran, Israel, or Venezuela. Uh, and this is the most damning looking forward for, the, for a country that needs to have, like every country, a foreign service and a foreign policy. Uh, this is going to be it's going to be the sweat there because it's going to be very costly and it's going to be very uphill uh, and it's not going to take just a couple of years uh, that's what I'm saying this, this has been the longest and in so many ways uh, some people say the most destructive uh, government ever given the, the economic boom that this government enjoyed and how those resources were squandered and how a, a valuable opportunity was wasted. Uh, especially given that the next government, uh, whoever that is, uh, will have to somehow adjust this economy, stabilize it, and open trade, and, and do all, all the homework that was left behind all these years. The tears, uh, if you want. Uh, if economic policy requires to reconstruct the state, uh, democracy requires to reconstruct politics, to recover civility in Argentine political discussion, to lower the volume of the political conversation, if you want. It's always very loud. Uh, it's always very acrimonious. Uh, and it's always a, a discussion that uh, is reductionist. And, and you can never discuss the issues. And whenever you want to discuss issues that go against the government, uh, you are part of uh, some obscure conspiracy to destabilize the government. Again, a government that has been in power 12 years, I want to highlight. Democracy requires to reconstruct constitutional mechanisms and procedures to recover separation of powers, to reenact true freedom of expression and the press, uh, to guarantee independence of the courts, uh, to reintroduce in a democratic country the fundamental institutional uh, blueprint of a democratic system, if you want. Uh, the interesting thing is that, interesting from an intellectual perspective, but complicated from a political one, is that all of this will have to happen in the midst of an election that is already in process. Uh, Argentina has a peculiar electoral system with a mandatory primary in August, uh, and then the first round in October, and the possibility of a second round uh, two, two weeks after. Also, it's already November, I think. Uh, which is uh, a possibility uh, that may well happen. Uh, all of this, as I said, in the midst of an election, and and with uh, very weak and fragmented political parties, if you want, uh, paradoxically. Uh, one of the main political strategies of the Kirchners have been the, the deepening of the political fragmentation where they, whose strategy of divide and conquer uh, allow them to, to maintain the upper hand all these years, all these 12 years. Uh, the ruling party is not a party. The, the Peronist party, if you want. The ruling party is a confederacy of regional bosses uh, with different degrees of power, different degrees of influence, and different 
degrees of territorial control. It's a little bit like the, Argentina has become a little bit like the American urban machine way back uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, but throughout the country. It's not only urban, it's, 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 it's a reproduction of uh, regional bosses, urban and rural, that uh, the center, the capital, has to negotiate permanently. Uh, the radical party, uh, another historical party, the party of Raul Alfonsin, uh, is on the verge of disappearing. It has become very weak, it has become also very fragmented, uh, and it's now in a coalition with the center-right party of Mauricio Macri, the mayor of Buenos Aires, pro. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, the only at least attempt to build a party is, is by Mauricio Macri and the pro, uh, which is not in the entire territory. It doesn't have presence in all the districts, but it has a very important presence in the main urban electoral districts. Uh, and that uh, it will perhaps make a difference. Uh, in that scenario, we know political parties, in, in, in our discipline, we know that political parties are in trouble everywhere. If in the US they're in trouble, in Europe they're in trouble. Whatever barometer, you know, public opinion poll you, you look at and you see uh, questions about the credibility of political parties, uh, political parties rank at the bottom. Uh, law and order institutions rank higher. Religious institutions rank higher. Uh, political parties are in trouble everywhere. But in Argentina, it has its own peculiarities. And, and it's very difficult to run an election. Moreover, when you have an incumbent government that retains enormous amount of power, it's very difficult to run an election uh, in a success, succession scenario without strong political parties. In, a, in many ways, what Argentina faces is like a, a democratic transition all over again. Uh, it's, it's like uh, as an old teacher and colleague of us, Philip Schmider, used to say that democratic transition is like defining the rules of chess while playing chess. And, and Argentina is, is a little bit like that, defining and redefining the institutions of democracy while you are in an electoral process and while you expect at the same time to win an election. It's a very complicated scenario, uh, full of uncertainties, which is characteristic of a democratic transitions, but these uncertainties are much deeper. Uh, the, the upcoming government, uh, which may be a continuation, one of the candidates with strong chances is a, pretty much a continuation of, uh, of the Kirchners, uh, who may win, Nonetheless, he will have also to, to give answers to all these things. And at least the, one, of, one of the glimmers of hope is that uh, if it's enough or not, we'll see. But in, in all the focus groups, this is Daniel Scioli, governor of the Buenos Aires province. In all the focus groups, uh, his uh, strongest uh, asset is to be tranquilo. Uh, you see... We, we don't expect too much. Uh, we want to accomplish too much. But only that, after this virtual uh, war of words, and for some people more than words, uh, tranquility is an accomplishment. The hope is, however, 
uh, I think uh, in uh, in the commitment of uh, society to to change, in the need of society and the demand of society to do things in a different way. The, the hope the, is based on the exhaustion of society because uh, after 12 years, any government exhausts a society by definition. Uh, well, this government has gone over that notion of exhaustion. Uh, and, and people are certainly demanding uh, a, a change of a way of conducting politics. Whoever that wins, whether that's Daniel Scioli, the, the governor of the Buenos Aires province, or Mauricio Macri, and these are the two candidates, the election is reduced to that, the mayor of Buenos Aires, the, the biggest challenge, but at the same time the hope uh, is the biggest challenge is to reconstruct politics, uh, to give responses to all these issues, the economy, the state, to recover democratic civility. Uh, and the good news is that both seem to be uh, quite clear on that necessity and those both seem to be committed to doing that. A different question will be who will be able to do it. Uh, of the two candidates, if at all, uh, given the, the vicious nature of the political process in the last, I would say, 12 years, but particularly uh, since uh, January 18th, which was the night in which Alberto Nisman was found dead. Thank you. <clears throat> Th thank you very much, Professor Seamus. Can I turn to you, Professor Prednick? It's a real pleasure to be with you at the Hudson Institute for the first time. Thank you, Jaime Darnbrun, for the invitation. Thank you, Dan Mayerishin, and the Benin Brief. Thank you, Chris, for the moderation. It's an honor to be with Ruth and Hector, and thank you for coming. Hector had uh, put the emphasis on the Argentinian political process, and that's one part of uh, the title of our presentation. The second part is anti-Semitism. I'm going to stress that part in my presentation. And uh, allow me to change the word. I prefer in my books the word Judeophobia rather than anti-Semitism. And I don't think it's only because anti-Semitism is kind of a misnomer. There are no Semites and they uh, have never been anti-Semites on earth, people who are against the Semites. But if it's just a wrong word, it doesn't matter. I think that here is more than that. Uh, we are misdiagnosing what Judeophobia is. Judophobia and anti-Semitism are synonyms, but I prefer one. And why do I think this? Because once I had a very, very clever Chinese student at the Hebrew University, and I told him that China was time and again presented as the only example of country where never, ever, ever Judophobia set a foot on. It's quite true. And his answer was astonishing, because he said, well, but you know, it'll happen quite soon, because we are looking towards Europe. We want to imitate Europe's progress. We want to include Europeans' achievements into the new state of uh, China. And when we bring this European CD into our society, it'll come with a virus. The virus is there the Judeophobic virus, which is an European disease. 
And I would like to stress this in order to explain what I mean by this. Judeophobia is a European invention. It was exported and it's still exported to the other continents with more or less success. But it was part of the European ideology since the 14th century and it's still there. Why? Because when I talk about Judeophobia, I don't mean, and this is the, the misdiagnosis of it, a discriminatory process, a phenomenon of discriminating Jews. Discrimination happens in other group hatreds, and it stems out of despise. I don't want these people with us. I don't like how they look. I think they're poisoning my society whatsoever. This has nothing to do with the uniqueness of Judophobia. Judophobia is not a discriminatory phenomenon. It's a, it is a demonizing phenomenon. And as such, if we don't grasp this essential difference, we won't be ever able to confront it. We'll have many congresses, many conferences, many lectures, many books written about it, but nothing will change the situation until we don't define exactly what type of phenomenon it is. Why are we confused about Judophobia? Because many of the aspects of discrimination, of hatred of the foreigner, or dislike of someone who is different from me, of plain bigotry, many of those aspects are present in Judophobia as well. And therefore, we get confused. There is a Judeophobia in Madison Grant's book of 1916 in America, The Passing of the Great Race, in which he accuses the Jews of mongrelizing the nation. But he could have accused African Americans of the same, any foreigner. If you just accuse someone out of a preconception, the Jews are all misers, the Jews are all, have all big noses, it really doesn't matter because it's not deep. No one will kill anyone because he's a miser or because he has a big, big nose, even if all of them do. But you won't kill them for that. But if the mythology you create against a group is that they kill God, that they are a satanic people, that they are a powerful people who control the world and that they have to be stopped then you would kill them as soon as law allows you to do it, as soon as culture encourages you to do it. And that is why, when you talk about Judeophobia, it's the only group hatred that can attack the target of the group even when he's not there. You don't need any Jew to be Judeophobic. Most Judeophobes never saw a Jew in their lives because it is they, they are, what they attack is this demonized creature that exists in their mind. You cannot be a xenophobe without foreigners. You cannot be a misogynist if they're not women. You cannot be a racist if in a society you have people of exactly the same color. But you can and you are a Judeophobe even when Jews are not there if you use this mythology of centuries in which hundreds of millions of people believed in it in Europe and became the source of this hatred. And therefore, Judeophobia in the sense of the beginning of the 20th century in America, in the Americas, such as the 
restrictive act of immigration of 1924, which was mainly against the immigration of Jews, is very close to xenophobic feelings. It, it has nothing different. It has nothing to be stressed. But when you start demonizing the Jews, they are not only different, and I don't want him, them to be there or close or to get married with my children, but they are the source of evil, as Mikis Theodorakis, this well-known Greek composer called the Jews once, the source of evil, well, you, have, you know what you have to do with the source of evil. In that sense, Argentina is the champion of Judophobia in the Americas. Because there is a Judophobia in Argentina in the first sense, dislike of the immigrant at the very beginning. But the demonizing process started with a novel. A novel published in 1891 in the main newspaper of Argentina. It is still the main newspaper, La Nación. And there, the author, Julian Martel, published a novel called La Bolsa, the Stock Exchange. What is so peculiar about this stock exchange? Julian Martel attacks the Jews for being the ones who are behind the collapse of the stock exchange in Buenos Aires a few years before. Curiously enough, there were no Jews. But he could do it. Why? Because he verbatim quotes from a book written five years before in France, La France Juive, the Jewish France by Edouard Roumont, and he quotes from there why the Jews control everything without even being in the country. And therefore, this demonization starts in Argentina. And not, not surprisingly, it is the most European-looking country of the Americas, always looking to Paris or to London, it depends what times, more than what they look to the north, as in the rest of the Latin American countries. And therefore, Judeophobia was there from the beginning in the demonizing aspect of this, and it had its speaks, it speaks, its ups and downs, till the Taquara organization, I'm jumping in the, the uh, mid-1960s, and why is it important to bring this example out of so many? Because here you have an example of a group who's basically fascist, led, spiritually led by a very well-known priest of those times, Julio Mainville. And this group killed Jews, tortured Jews just for being Jews, but afterwards became part of it the main source of the left-wing side of the Peronist party, which was quoted before by Hector, called the Montoneros, the guerrilla organization which fought mainly democratic governments, not only, but also the dictatorship in Argentina. And this Montoneros group had many of the people who had before led the Taquara fascist organization. And it's extremely actual because nowadays the intellectual side of the Kirchner government, 12 years in power, is basically conformed by these youngsters who were before Montoneros or whose parents were the Montoneros, and now it's called La Campora. This is the youth group that inspires, that gives the ministers to the present government, and which was embedded in this satanic description of who the Jews are. Now, does that mean that the Argentinian government is Judeophobic? 
And the answer is no. The expressions of this demonization were very, very, uh, they were absent in the Argentinian discourse. But I knew, having researched the subject, that at some point they would appear. And that is why I'm trying to uh, present now. The peak of Argentinian Judeophobia was, of course, the terror attack against the Israeli embassy in 1992, the Jewish Community Center in 1994, 86 or 85 people murdered, hundreds maimed, wounded. And this is a new type of attack because although I said it's mainly European, the inspiration, now it comes recycled in a Muslim motif and in a left-wing description that were together in, our, in Latin America, thanks to the government of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who blended this motif of Islamic Judeophobia together with left-wing presentation and starting demonizing the Jews and the state of Israel. In the, it, let me present the facts that led to the AMIA bombing and to Alberto Nisman's murder. It all started in 1979, January, when the Islamist revolution took over in Iran. This was their first world achievement. Of course, we have to differentiate between the religion of Islam and the Islamist political movement. Islamism as a political movement which attempts to impose the worst face of Islamic religion world over through violence, through terror. It's quite similar to Nazism and communism. The three totalitarian movements that were created more or less in the 20s, 100 years ago, and they spoke one of a superior race, another one of a superior class, another one of a superior the other one was superior religion. But the main thing is that they were superiors, they had truth, they were going to impose truth on earth by violent means. And that is much closer, brings them much closer to each other than what they bring, the, the, the similarities they could have with either world solidarity, German nationalism, or the religion of Islam. The Islamic leaders of Iran, the Islamist leaders, from the beginning said that the Islamist revolution that took place in Iran had to be exported to the rest of the world. They never hid this, and they worked accordingly, sending people abroad, creating dormant cells in many countries that would operate for the Islamic revolution, recruiting Islamic Islamic fanatics in different places to try to put them together, to work together. And they started, as I said, sending people to different countries, Central America, Germany, several were caught, put into prison. And one particularly, in 1984, was sent to Argentina. We are talking about Mohsen Rabani, uh, which we have a name we have to remember. He was a mastermind of the AMIA bombing. Mohsen Ravani was sent to Argentina in order to build these dormant cells and to create a network of Islamic fanatics in order to attack the Jewish community. The question is, why Argentina? First of all, they 
claim in their own uh, written statements that Argentina was a very easy country to get into it and to work and to find allies in the old type of Judeophobes who would be very happy to hurt the Jews. But secondly, they wanted to punish the Argentinian government. In 18, I'm sorry, 1989, Carlos Menem came to power in Argentina and decided to change 180 grades the foreign policy of the country. We don't want to be anymore in the third world. We don't want to be anymore in the non-aligned movement. We want to be in the first world. We'll be the allies of the United States. We want to be welcome to that club. Basically, that was the message of Menem. He was the first Argentinian president to visit Israel. I was one of the people in Israel who received him there. He sent even two ships, warships, to the first Gulf War against Saddam Hussein. They were symbolic in their... Uh, in the way they acted, but it was a very important symbol. Argentina was fighting against a third world populist dictator. And the United States said, welcome to the club on one condition. There were, at that moment, several agreements between Argentina and Iran of, uh, to, for the transmission of nuclear technology. Argentinian nuclear technology to Iran. That has to be stopped. Menem at the beginning said, no problem. We'll suspend these agreements. And then the embassy was blown up in 1992. Menem got very angry and pointed out almost explicitly that he was working against Iran and said, no more deals. It's not that we suspend the agreements. We cancel them. Never again will transmit, transfer nuclear technology to Iran. And they put the bomb in the AMIA as a punishment. If you say why, if you wonder why against the Jewish community in Argentina, why if you want to punish the Argentinian president for his pro-Western new policy, you want to hurt precisely the Jews, the answer is very clear. Why not? If you're going to do it, just do it with pleasure. They hated the Jews. They said it very openly. So if they had to put a bomb in Argentina, the best way to kill two birds with a stone would be to put the bomb in a Jewish organization. And this was decided in a convention in the Iranian town of Mashhad in August 1983. And it was finally uh, uh, perpetrated in Buenos Aires against the Jewish community. One week after the bombing took place, Menem changed his speech from saying, we're going to persecute them till the end. We are going to fight them. He started saying, well, we don't know exactly what happened. There was a slow whitewashing of the whole operation. Iran went to a low profile. No one wanted to confront Iran directly, so they found several Argentinian policemen who were supposedly the perpetrators of the terror attack. And this cover-up almost succeeded. It didn't because there was a lawyer, a very unknown prosecutor on his way to get into this scenario, almost by chance. Alberto Nisman was invited by one of the prosecutors of the AMIA case in a wedding party to join their team. Would you like to be one of us? We are two, we'll be three. 
their basic motivation was that Alberto had a last long experience in court trials and uh, they didn't. He knew how to speak on trial. They didn't. So they wanted this expertise. He was only 33 by then. And he came into the picture. At the beginning, it all worked. And the court trial started when people were starting to be interrogated. We are in the year 2001 already. And Alberto realized during this court trial that there was a big frame, that no one was saying the truth, that all, every single contradiction you can find in these so-called witnesses. And therefore, he decided, we'll start all over again the investigation. These policemen are very corrupted, but they don't have anything to do with the terror attack. And we'll start from zero. The prosecutors that were with him were finally dismissed. The judge was dismissed. And he remained by himself. Ten years after the attack... He put all the investigation under this UFI, the unit, the prosecution unit of investigation, UFI. He headed this UFI till his assassination with about 30, 40 professionals of the first rate. I knew him personally very closely. He was my friend, and I visited him at the UFI many, many times. And the first fruit of his investigation, I'm going to state three stages. I call it in my articles the Nisman Trilogy. The first fruit was Iran was behind the terror attack. Not a few Iranians, not radical Iranians. The state of Iran planned it, planned it perpetrated it, brought the uh, suicide bomber and everything. Trained him, gave him passports, whatever. Financed it. This first stage, in a, in a prosecution opinion of 802 pages, was the brilliant first great achievement of Nisman. I nov in my book, To Kill Without a Trace, I novelize this opinion, because 802 pages of a legal document are extremely boring. I thought it was a, ne a, a need of the Argentinian society to know details of how he discovered all this, how he investigated, and therefore I wrote this book with his help. But this was only the first stage. Argentina declared that it was true. There was a cover-up that on the, on the words of, uh, of President Kirchner, Nestor Kirchner, the husband, the way that Argentina handled the AMIA case was a national disgrace. We have to change everything from the root. And we did the cover-up. This was admitted. But the triumphant, triumphant prosecutor was not about to stop. Because in the year 2007, there was a, another big attempt of a terror attack against the JFK airport. This was planned by someone called Abdul Qadir. He was originally the mayor of the second most important town in Guyana, Linden. After that, he converted to Islam. He became an Islamist. And he was trained and recruited in order to blow up the JFK 
airport on his way from Caracas, Venezuela, to Iran. There were very fluent flights between Caracas and Iran, not transporting tourists precisely. And this was foiled. He was caught, put in prison in America. What does Nisman have to do with this? Absolutely nothing, unless he can prove that there is some relationship between the attempt of Abdul Qadir and what happened in Argentina several years before, 20 years before. And the, not 20, 12, 13 years before. And his intuition proved to be truth. Abdul Qadir was the direct disciple of Rabani. He got orders from Rabani. Nisman discovered it. This is the second stage. This was his second prosecutory opinion, this time of about 500 pages, in which he proves not only that Iran was behind the Argentinian attacks, but that Iran is the head of a world network of terror, of dormant cells in many countries that are waiting for the moment in order to make a terror attack. Three months ago, it happened in Montevideo, Uruguay. He was just caught by chance, but he was going to put a, 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 an Iranian diplomat who was not even punished for it. He was going to put a bomb at the Israeli embassy in Montevideo. And if these dormant cells are really dormant sleeping, it's only because of Nisman, because he put the focus on investigating Iran. So the Iranians are more careful nowadays of not uh, to operate these cells around. But in any case, this was his second achievement, 2013. Iran was the head of a world n terror network, and that put Argentina at the avant-garde of the fight against, legal fight against terrorism. Surprisingly enough for Nisman, the Argentinian government was not so happy to discover this. He didn't get much support, as he had been given in the previous stage. He felt that something was wrong, and you could see immediately what. That same year, 2013, in January, the Iranian government and Argentina signed a memorandum of understanding in which paragraph 3, article 3 of this memorandum, Argentina and Iran were going to share all the information related to the investigation. Can you imagine? The victim comes to the murderer and says, now we're going to investigate together. But not only that, I'm going to give you all the information, even who were the Iranians that collaborated with us in the investigation. We're going to be given to the Iranian government. Uh, a misunderstanding, a, a, a misunderstatement um, about this would be Nisman didn't like it. The seventh article of this memorandum says that they have to report immediately to Interpol. This is the only op operative article in the memorandum. Why did they have to report to the Interpol? Because this was what Argentina promised Iran. These red alerts against seven of your citizens will be dropped. We cannot ask for them to be dropped. And the Argentinian government says time and again now, nowadays, we can prove that we never asked these red alerts to be dropped from the Interpol because they didn't have to ask. Once they signed this memorandum, they would be dropped immediately because Interpol can say, as it had said before in another similar case, we are aware that there is an agreement between the two parts, the two parties. Can you imagine? Two parties. 
the bombers and the victims. And since there is an agreement, we'll wait for this commission of truth that's going to uh, investigate the case again. We'll wait for the results until we get this result, that could be 20 or 30 years more, we'll suspend the red alerts. That was planned. Nisman realized that this memorandum was not the beginning of understanding between Argentina and Iran. It was the end of it. The beginning had been signed secretly two years before in Aleppo, Syria, by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Timmerman, with his counterpart of Iran. And there they decided to launch a campaign of confusion of which this commission of truth was going to be the main expression. We have to make people think maybe there was an attack, maybe there was not an attack, maybe it was Iran, maybe it was not Iran, nothing is proved. The Argentinian government called this, as Hector said, the cause, the Argentinian, the AMIA case is paralyzed. There was not such a thing. The AMIA case was solved. Not only was not paralyzed, had been solved. The paralysis was because the Iranian government is still protecting the perpetrators. And that paralysis had nothing to do with the UFI or with Nixon or Argentina or legal procedure. But they called it, this is paralysis. So we want to move forward. And we used to move forward to move towards Iran. The fact is that Argentina had decided that in this new geopolitical situation, we cannot be angry at Iran forever. We have to alienate with Iran we want to be Iran. We want Iran to become our clients again. We want them uh, this treaty oil for wheat. And in this new Chavez-like world, in which the only thing you have to do is to fight so-called imperialism, and in order to fight American imperialism, you have to get very good allies, namely Cuba, North Korea, Iran. In this new world. We, can, we have to drop this enmity between Argentina and Iran. This is a political decision that is still in process. This was the, stir, the third and last stage of Nisman. He didn't want to, research, to investigate the president, but the investigation of the president came to him because when he investigated these cells in Argentina, he discovered, he was flabbergasted to discover that they were in connection with the Argentinian government. He had the tapes, 5,000 hours of tapes. He was going to present the results at the Congress, and he was murdered one day before. I'm going to sum up and finish by saying the following. The Nisman case necessarily brought Judeophobia again as a protagonist of Argentinian society. Why? Not because Nisman was Jewish. So far, I tried, and not only me, many people in Argentina tried not to make out of Nisman's case a Jewish case because he was not murdered because of being Jewish. He was murdered because of his investigation. Had he not been Jewish, he would have been, been murdered in any case. But the first stage of the government's reaction was create a feeling that this investigation was a plain lie, that it was just an invention, a fabrication of this deluded guy. The second stage was the character assassination. Nisman was a terrible man. And you can see it. I don't get into details, but it's very well reported. And the third unavoidable stage was an attack against the Jewish community. Because 
the Jewish community in Argentina will be the last to accept that the perpetrators of the attack, namely Iran, will be whitewashed. And that is the decision of the Argentinian government to date. And therefore, you have to delegitimize even the Jewish organized community. How did they do it? The, uh, uh, Hector very well mentioned this Twitter sent, but you said the government. I don't know whether you were trying to be nice to them. It's a president. The Argentinian president sent a Twitter. You say sent a Twitter or sent a tweet? Sent a tweet. A tweet. <laughs> she tweeted that the, Ar the Jewish community organized, transcends national sovereignties, and together with the vulture phones, and with Nisman, and with the American embassy, all together, that's the way they operate in the whole world. Can you imagine? Have you heard about that before? The Jews are operating in the whole world in order to bring the nations to war each against other, and they, they have so much power. And I didn't realize before, says the president, but now I realize how they're operating. And she brings what is going to be my last point. Don't worry, Chris. I once, I, I cannot stop repeating that Judophobia is a demonizing phenomenon. And if you don't see that, the rest is a minor detail. Whether Jews are not allowed to a club doesn't matter nowadays. They have better clubs. The question is not how they are discriminated. The question is how they are demonized. And the, and the big question is, when they demonize Jews, where do they start from? They don't demonize Jewish religion anymore. Mostly they don't. They don't say that Jews eat Christian blood in order to make their, their matzah for Passover. They don't claim that anymore, basically. And not, they don't claim that Jewish citizens shouldn't have any more rights, civil rights. That's also passé. Now they demonize the Jewish state. Israel is there. Israel is, is the worst country. Israel was born in sin. You know that there are 194 countries in the world. 193 never knew wars were born peacefully, harmoniously, all of them such uh, calm, as you said, tranquilo societies. There's only one country that was born out of war and, and deceit. And basically, these Jewish traits, which were absorbed by the Jewish state nowadays. And therefore, if you don't see that the beginning of Judophobia today is demonizing the Jewish state, and then you can attack the Jews as a whole, if you just feel that, well, we should stop these attacks against Israel because they can become at some point an attack against the Jews. The Jews are attacked. It's not that they can become. That is Judophobia today. Judophobia today is demonizing Israel. This is the main uh, source of it. And I close. The president was a very good example because she couldn't stop herself from mentioning Israel in this tweet. Mm -hmm. She says very specifically, in the same way, like Netanyahu spoke in the American Congress, trying to stop peace between the two countries, America and Iran. They work here, like Netanyahu, the Daya works here, trying to stop peace between Argentina and Iran. The world scenario is very discouraging because there is no force, there is no moral force, there is no Western leader that stands up and says, we have to stop the Iranians. The world terror power, the worst world terror power since Nazism and communism. 
since no one wants to stop the Iranians, then the Argentinians can say, we are going to do it. We also have to be in this new geopolitical situation. And that was the sad story that the brave prosecutor, which, with whom I had the honor to be his friend, paid with his life. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Perednik. And I, I, I can tell your background as a novelist comes through in two important ways. One, you tell us to pay attention to words, which I think is important. And also, you bring the drama to a situation that has a great deal of drama, but, but tell us the story dramatically. So thank, thank you. you very much. Now we turn to Professor Diamin. Thank you. Please. Well, good afternoon. I want first to uh, great Mr. Ambassador Jaime Darenblum for his invitation, also the Hudson Institute for this invitation and the public. And in general, it's very common that when you are the third person to speak, you said, well, all the things that I was thinking to say was said, that won't be the case. Um, my first point is related to um, I was thinking that the Nisman would be uh, presented by the other person here at the panel, and I was not thinking to speak about that. Um, my first point is to try to say something about the Peronis. And if it's, I have the opportunity to say something intelligent, it will be, be really a great uh, deal, because in general it's very difficult to define or to understand what is the Peronis. I will use an expression or an idea to try to explain what is Peronis in Argentina with a word that I really don't know the translation is the name of Perinola. I think that maybe Dreidel. I don't know if someone knows the, the name in English and can help me. But it's a small uh, toy that we use when I were, were ja young. The young people here don't know about that. <laughs> you may like that. And they have six faces. And one of them says, take all. And this is the Peronis. The Peronis understand and make the idea to take all. Um, the strategy that was left by Peron and reproduced by the other leaders of the Peronist party is that they have speech for everyone, or maybe for quasi all, not for everyone. They can say something to the business community and totally the contrary to the worker community. They have uh, a discourse for the fascist people and they have a discourse for the socialist people. They can include practically all, including me, that I am not Peronist. I am what in Argentina you call a gorilla. <laughs> and I was chief of cabinet of the Ministry of Defense of Kirchner. Uh, this idea of taking all is really very difficult to combat for other parties. And also it is true and something that uh, Hector Chamis said uh, recently, that they used to organize uh, in front of this uh, amorph group of people an enemy. And in general it's uh, very useful in different moments of the Argentine politics to have as an enemy the USA or in another moment, the church, or can, can be the conservative party, or the media. And this, um, the creation of this enemy, is also a process to have, in a way, an identity as a party. 
the Peronist is not an ideology, it's a sentiment. Menem did the same, and both Kirchner also did, uh, do the same. They take all, on, they try at least to take all. But the case now is that Christina, time to time, forgot some Peronist lessons. She decided to center her support in the, what we call, Juventud Maravillosa, the wonderful youth, that Perón threw out of the Plaza de Mayo. The problem with this government is that they, do not, uh, they don't do all badly unless do all good. And let me to give some examples. Cristina Fernandez said, and I quote, we have built a school every day and half of our administration. The journalist organization Chequeado, checked, uh, no, that is a true uh, assessment. Although some infrastructure is not so good, but the reality is good. But at the same time, the undernutrition increase. Christina Gorman spent in urban trains something that has not happened since 1985. That is true. But also it, uh, it is true that it was the moment where more deaths by train accidents happened in the last 30 years. During the three years of state management of IPF, is the petroleum company of Argentina, nationalized, it doubles its investment. At the same time, we need to remember that unemployment in Argentina is the third highest in <coughs> comparison with other South American countries. But Argentina is not Venezuela, it's not Bolivia. It must be understood in their own terms. It's not black. It's not white. There are other subjects that was uh, suggested by the organizers and was central in the Gustavo presentation. And I also want to make a short commentary about the subject, about anti-Semitism in Argentina. In my perception, in Argentina, there are so much anti-Semitism as in USA, as in Italy, as in Spain. One thing that we can take into account is that the uh, two most important ministers of the government are Jewish, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Economy. And also it was important to remember that the Minister of Education was uh, Jewish, something that uh, was in general controlled by the Catholic Church and that in a lot of countries with some, Catholic, uh, some religious identification, never is given to uh, other community. For me, it's not a problem of anti-Semitism, and it's a question that I will uh, relate to or put close to the idea of the relato, the narrative. Uh, Israel is close to the U.S., and U.S. is a very easy, a very uh, helpful enemy to put this kind of identification. This is a political question, it's not a religious question. Uh, it's true that we don't know exactly, and never we will know, uh, what kind of negotiation Argentina had with Iran, but uh, I never will put this in the subject of anti-Semitism. Uh, my last point is that some people, or most people, probably most people here in this meeting, think that the solution for Argentina's future is MM, 
not the candy, but the governor of the province of uh, Buenos Aires, the city of Buenos Aires. Uh, and I, in general, I'm surprised when I hear that they have a lot of high expectation about Macri, because if you analyze two terms in government, they are not so much to really signal about what he, ha uh, he made. Probably the people will remind remember most the bike way, that is something new in uh, Buenos Aires and it's good. Uh, but if you look, uh, if there are better plans for education or the public health is improving in these per two periods, it's not the truth. If we take away infrastructure investment, I really think that not great realization in the administration of Macri. And according also to Chequeado, this journalist uh, organization, in the period of Macri, there was a reduction between 2008 and 2013 from 1.34 to uh, 0.66, the of investment in infrastructure and maintenance. Macri quadruplied the foreign debt of the city. Infant death increasing by the average of the last three years comparing to the previous two terms. What is the people seeing in Macri? For me, the meaning of Macri is anti-politics. He has no sense of the notion of public. He has very good uh, technicians, but not power builders. And to conclude, I want to say that for me, looking in all these different problems that Argentina had, the probably most important problem is predictability. And I will use a phrase that I read yesterday from the president of Chile, Michelle Bachelet, in a presentation that she made in front of businessmen in France. And she said during this conference that Chile is a serious country. We are not populist. But the phrase that for me was most interesting is the next one. And I quote, we not pose element as government than another government cannot continue to hold. Well, I was thinking if Michel Bachelet were president of Argentina with all our economic diversity and the diversity of climates, being the eighth biggest territory of the world with a high level of education and innovation and very competitive workers, could you imagine how powerful will be or maybe not? Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Diemen. Now we have the opportunity to engage all of you in this conversation. There's a lot on the table to, in, to pick up on, and I'm looking for some very good questions. There are some young people with microphones because we're recording the event. We'd love to have you speak into the microphone, tell us who you are and where you're from, and then give us your question. Um, if I can start with the gentleman here, and I'll come to the gentleman here next. Um, a gentleman in the brown jacket, he's waving his hand there. Sorry about that. Sir. Hello. Uh, I am from Argentina, Andy Jude, and uh, I want to ask a question to Gustavo, and maybe Hector can help also in this, and also somebody that works in the area of defense, of course, can also add a lot of information. Uh, I am following, like all the Argentinians, all the Nisman case, 
And it seems that Nisman was inside a world of secret agents, a lot of uh, conspiracies and people inside, and uh, knowing that you were very close to, to, Al to Alberto, he, he got a lot of uh, letters, blackmails, uh, uh, threats, what he was saying about all this world, and really, where is Argentina? Because we talk about a lot of politics, but it seems that there is a black box that we don't talk much about Argentina, that is all these secret services that we don't know for whom they are working. And I think that here, very close, we have uh, the CIA five miles from here. I think that they, they don't trust Argentina in any point. What's your opinion? Maybe the three can help about this, and especially you, Gustavo, that you were a friend of, of Alberto, no? I start my book by saying that when I met him for the first time, I had my first talk with him, I was surprised that such a naive person would survive this world that you describe, of mafias and of intelligence service and counterintelligence and counter-counterintelligence that we don't know who they're working for. But there is an there is a moment in which everything changed. Till the assassination of Nisman, the head of the intelligence, Argentinian intelligence, was someone called Jaime Stuso, who worked very close to Nisman. I never met him, but Nisman always talked about him, and very highly. And you knew that it was a professional group. Of course, you had, even in professional group, when you are in such a secrecy, you have people who work uh, without you knowing who they are. But basically, you had a very professional group that worked in order to get information to the defense of Argentinian society and the Argentinian government, no matter which government was there. After Nisman assassination, or, or to put it more precisely, after the Argentinian government realized that Nisman was investigating no one less than the president... Everything changed. Stuso was fired. Another person was put in, uh, uh, instead of him. The whole structure was completely changed. And now we definitely don't know who's working for the Argentinian intelligence because they are very close to the Venezuelans. That happened to Venezuela. That they changed the intelligence service, put it in the hands of basically pro-Iranian groups, and the whole Venezuelan society came under suspicion and under and in danger. I'm giving you one tip about that, and that's the, the end of my answer. In the threats that Nisman got all the time, the language used was, you are a representative of the gringos in our country. Now, gringo, for anyone who is from Argentina, knows that it is a, uh, the derogatory term used in Venezuela or Central America, not in Argentina. In Argentina, you use the word Yankees when you want to say American in a more colloquial way. You don't use the word gringos. It's not Argentinian. And those were the emails he got, calling the Americans the gringos. So very probable these people were not Argentinians. They were Venezuelans or, or, or working for Iran from another country. Those were Nisman's enemies, and therefore to put now, as it, you know, I was telling Hector before we came in, that today is particularly a very sad day, because the so-called experts in the murder of Nisman, 
almost all of them came to the conclusion that it was a suicide today. They were going to present this to the main prosecutor. Of course, they are working for the government. But it's such a travesty of justice. I mean, no one, no one including them, believes that Nisman could have su committed suicide 15 minutes before he was going to present his whole case to the Congress of Argentina. So therefore, these people and who are working be beyond them and who is behind the intelligence service is part of the dark page of Argentinian history in which we're going into now. Anyone else on the panel like to no. weigh in on this? Uh, the gentleman here in the front, uh, Andrew, the um, gentleman in the red shirt. Raise your hand so we can spot you. There you are. Hi. My name is Alex Sanchez. I work for the Council of Hemispheric Affairs. This is a question for, for Professor Diamant. Um, we are in election season. I was wondering what kind of campaign promises have the candidates made when it comes to internal security in Argentina. Um, drug trafficking is a huge issue right now. Two years ago, we had a protest by the, by the country's police force. Um, I read that just two weeks ago, they captured uh, drug trafficking in Rosario a guy called Maximo Ariel, who was leader of a drug gang called Los Monos, I believe the monkeys. Um, I was wondering what kind of campaign promises can we expect from the candidates and what kind of real-life solutions will they carry out? Are they going to push for some kind of mano dura initiative like they're doing in Central America, or are they going to try to like, tone it out somehow? Thank you. Now? Please. Um, uh, in general, the people in Argentina are not favor to mano dura. And in my work that I work in general, these kind of subjects, I always say that there are not one case in what you can say that this mano dura or this use of the military as a police give good, res good results. I don't think that any of the candidates, although they can have different perception about uh, some repressive measures, will use openly their forces for security is something in Argentina. First, it's prohibited by law. Second, there are strong consensus against that. But the reality is that we have security problems, probably not so high that sometimes the press used to say. Um, but you, we also have uh, several forces, the gendarmerie, the Coast Guard, the national police, the provincial police, uh, that can really manage the situation. Uh, it's not a problem of capacity of the forces. It's per sometimes a problem of um, the use of law, the judiciary system, and some political will. But I don't think that we are in a situation where the forces that must give an answer for this kind of problem are superated by the situation. We have the situation to answer to this kind of situation. Other, other questions? We're looking for them. And while you're, oh, we have one here in the uh, second row. Thank you very much. Thank you all uh, very much for uh, very interesting presentations. Um, I, I, my question goes to Hector and to Ruth, <laughs> really. And Hector, you started or uh, ended by, uh, again, the challenges of reconstructing the state after these last um, 12 years. And Ruth, um, you commented that uh, though uh, North Americans <laughs> seem to like Macri, he doesn't seem to have a great governance. 
uh, record. Um, where can you describe the the positions, the potential of the different parties to be able to take on this reconstructing uh, the the state? And you know, if we were if we were looking for uh, where to put our bets, <laughs> uh, where where are they? To go as we look at these uh, at, at these elections, because as as you said, uh, there's an incredible lot of potential in Argentina. It's mobilizing that, and that is going to require governance. You first. <laughs> well, let me tell you two things. One of the uh, two of the most important offensives uh, onslaughts on constitutional rights uh, that Argentina suffered from the government has have been the onslaught against uh, freedom of the press, the demonization, to use Gustavo's word, of uh, a particular uh, journalistic organization, Clarín, uh, and an onslaught, uh, quite an offensive, against the independence of the courts. Uh, two of the fundamental blocks, building blocks of a democratic society. If you, have a, if you have independent judges, the government can have a negative uh, judicial sentence. In, in authoritarian societies, the government never loses a, a lawsuit. If you have an independent press, critical press, uh, society is empowered to criticize in turn. Uh, and the rest, uh, would be better or worse, but you know, political parties and elections. But you know, two of those fundamental blocks I firmly believe in uh, as necessary for a democratic society and a democratic political system. Simply put, uh, in Congress, uh, from all the other candidates, it's been only Macri's people who have been firmly uh, defending these two principles throughout. Uh, and uh, not the other candidates' people whatsoever, because the other candidate has been a, a sort of a, I would say, a minor partner of uh, of the government, and and he's been all these years, you know, very much hated by the president, you know, and mistreated by the president, and trying to align himself with the president. It's a, it's a it's a comedy almost. If it wasn't so bad, if it wasn't so serious, it would be like comedy. And. Uh, and he hasn't had clear, he, clear positions on, on these two things alone. And I think reconstructing the state uh, in Argentina should start there, right there. Uh, and, uh, and the rest of the political spectrum has been reduced to these two options by now. And this is the only option that, uh, that has defended the, the independence of the courts and, the, and freedom of expression. In, in a consistent and uh, a systematic way. So uh, the rest, well, presumably the, the Macri is a good uh, technical, a good technocrat, and uh, he can do it, uh, economic policy, monetary policy, statisticals, uh, Office of Statistics, and so on and so forth, which is necessary, but, uh, but these two issues come first, I think. and. and and are a prerequisite for the other issues. And I think that's 
quite a bit of reconstruction of the state, of a democratic state. Thank you. I have some coincidence with Hector and some difference. Uh, <laughs> always. Uh, I, well, we are speaking about two candidates uh, that are now the two that have more possibilities. And both candidates really have not clear expression about what kind of policies they will take in a lot of subjects, uh, including your question about se internal security. Uh, Macri has a very good team. I really think that he has very good people, but he has not political definitions, clear political definitions. He don't want to have a clear ideological definition because he also is tempted to seduce some part of the Peronist party. And um, also Macri has some problems with justice, not so hard and not so awful as the vice president, but he was not the perfect person, the clear person. And my concerns uh, about him is related to what your question, Margaret, that is domestic governance. Uh, Argentina is not an easy country to manage. And uh, I r really think that he has not the political skills, understanding what is a political uh, management. He still managed the city, in my perception, as he managed the club Boca. He has a private mind in front of the public things. And this will be, for my perception, very difficult for the governments of the future. Other questions from the audience? The gentleman here? Um, there you are. Hi, my name is Fred Barnes with the Weekly Standard magazine. I didn't quite understand this conspiracy theory that Dan uh, Mariachin mentioned that involves, seems to involve uh, Jewish groups and uh, Nisman and the vulture funds and uh, all being together uh, at least against uh, any sort of agreement between or friendship or rapprochement between Argentina and, and uh, Iran. Uh, I just don't see how the vulture funds fit in here. Well, I don't either. That's a pr precisely the conspiracy theory. The press, it all started by an article published in a left-wing newspaper in Argentina, Pagina 12, by someone who works for the government, Luis Elbaum, his name. This person had been the official director of the DAIA, the Jewish Community Political Representation, and therefore whatever he said would, can be taken as something explained by someone who is working from within and he knows very well what happens. In this article, which I think was requested by the government because he's not a person who writes articles usually, he claims that these vulture funds were pressing on Argentina because Nisman knew them closely and he suggested to the Daya, to the Jewish community, that if they press through the vulture fund to the Argentinian government, the government would not sign any more agreements with Iran. In order to stop this rapprochement with Iran, then they could press them through this vulture fund. Uh, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, close to truth in this uh, statement. But it puts things in a conspirational way that you cannot refute. How can you prove that there is no such a secret uh, agreement? In any case, I suggest that you go to the 
um, Twitter page of the president, and there you'll find this Twitter. Otherwise, I can send it to you. It's in English, in Spanish, and in English. So the intention was very clear. She published this also in English on the basis of this article. Now, the president said, kind of funny, uh, the way she presented it, when I read this article, I was so shocked that I read it three times. It was her presentation. She spoke on national TV to say this. Of course, the first thing that comes to mind to anyone who was once at university is that if you read an article that you're shocked about, you try to read something else in order to compare. And you don't read three times the same article to be shocked and over-shocked and more shocked for the three times. But this is the way she presented it. And therefore, since this quotation, the reaction, the response of the Jewish community was immediate. The Daya said, this is going back to the world Jewish conspiracy, and be very careful, Mr. President, this is what the Daya president said, be very careful, because Judeo, he said anti-Semitism is combustible. It's not combustible. It's flame, flammable. Flammable? Is that what? Is flammable, and, and I think it was a very good uh, um, wording of it. Uh, after that, there were no more statements. I mean, obviously, someone told her, "You know what? From now on, law profile. Don't repeat it. Uh, you don't have to apologize for it, but try. Let's try to people to f forget about it. That's what it is. But you can see it in internet. Mm -hmm. This gentleman here." Hello, I'm Agustin Porres from uh, Georgetown University student. Thank you very much for the presentations. As uh, your question about the future, more thinking on politics, I totally agree that Macri has not a clear vision or, or, or clear statement about the future. Scioli almost the same. Like the message is Scioli says, be quiet or tranquilos, and Macri says, don't be afraid, and that's all. My question for you is, why do you think we don't deserve or we don't have a long-term vision, a long-term plan in politics? Uh, I read about Chile, for example, Bachelet presented a plan for five years with different steps. We don't receive any plan with steps. We are going to receive some dramatical issues in the December 11, and that's all. Like, why the, the background of this, why none of the candidates give us a long-term plan. And if you see a plan, uh, let me know, but I, I feel that I, we don't have it yet. Uh, uh, I, with another colleague, Laura Tedesco, we had a study comparing and, and studying politicians from Argentina, Uruguay, Ecuador, Venezuela, and Colombia. And we have around 230 interviews with politicians, mainly, mainly for Congress. And uh, it was really very clear that for us, well, we have a problem in Venezuela, we only can interview people from the position. That is a BS to make a, com a confirmation about Venezuela. But comparing the other four countries, the worst politicians were the Argentinians. They don't speak about future. I am not speaking about the candidate. I'm speaking the people who is in Congress about Imagining, imagining the future about what are the first concerns that move them to go to politics. They're really, um, in a way, we are, we are both Argentinians, 
uh, disappointed to hear that this is the kind of politics. And I, in a way, we are speaking about something that Hector said, the problem of the political parties. Political parties are essential to build politics. And the case of Uruguay is the best case where you have a practice, a quotidian practice of politics in the parties. And uh, I will stay, uh, say again, because I am the anti-Peronist, that is, in a way, the form of making politics that the Peronist is telling the country that dilute this idea of confronting ideas, confront projects, platforms, etc. And also, after this initial setting, you have the history of the country, the culture of the country, the political culture of the country, the economic situation, and a lot of components, elements that makes that we have this kind of politics. I imagine you are Argentinian. Well. <laughs> hmm. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> um, I tend to agree for the most part with Ruth on, on these issues. Uh, but there is a little bit of a story here that, uh, yeah, Peronism, let's say as an identity, because I don't think it's a party anymore, or it's a, it doesn't have any organizational form, uh, has installed that style that, you know, what is politics for? For power. Uh, well, but, you know, exactly what you're claiming is, well, and policies. <laughs> say, well, that's, that we'll see, right? Uh, which is, you know, sort of part of the folklore, Argentine folklore, but it's sad. It's, it's not good. But the other part is that uh, political parties, uh, there, there is something here that I have to say happened in my view, and I wrote about this. Uh, when uh, the crisis uh, blew up in 2001, the worst economic crisis in Argentina's history, as as Joaquin Morales Soler, a young journalist, already in 2004 he was writing about the, the, the crisis of the beginning of the century. <laughs> it's a little weird, it's only a couple of years later, but it was. The, the political system got almost destroyed. People were on the streets, you know, they should all leave. Because if it wasn't those, you, you were probably there. And they never recovered from that. The, what the realization of that crisis, uh, one thing was the economic crisis, but there was a uh, sort of subterraneous, underground political crisis in the making. That the conclusion to that was, well, the political system was very fragmented. The, 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 the basic tasks of the political parties have to do, coordinate elections, select uh, leaders, and, and put together programs, was not, was not being done anymore because they were too fragmented to do that. Kirchner realized, Nestor realized that that was good, good business uh, if you're in power because you can deepen that. And if you succeed deepening that, uh, well, that will force everybody to come to you. And fragmentation and division was the name of the game within his own party, by the way, uh, and within other parties, rival parties. Well, if that's the name of the game for 12 years, it's it's very difficult. It's it's like you know the cases, Uruguay and Chile and Colombia have have parties. <laughs> uh, Argentina doesn't. Has Argentina has groups of people that more or less get together. 
clicks, not even movements. It's, it's fragmentation. I, I see fragmentation as the name of the game. Now, the other thing is, uh, in a sort of a, a position that, uh, in, in all fairness to people in opposition, members of Congress in opposition, uh, some of which are some of whom are my, are my friends, I have to say, th it has been extremely, extremely difficult to be in opposition in Argentina all these years. Short of you know, Videla and, and the military regime, there's never been anything more difficult uh, in Argentina's history to be in opposition. A anything you can imagine, cooptation, bribing, fragmentation, intimidation, you name it. What, what we saw since, the, one of the issues about the Nisman case is that in a little bit, in a, in a in a sort of a microscopic way was a characterization of what has been going on in the politics of Argentina for a long time, for 12 years. And therefore, well, then it's unfortunate that there are no articulate, organized, consistent platforms for a running candidate. Uh, but we have to take into account the other aspect, the fragmentation, the, the, the intimidation, the, the division, and so on and so forth. However, I have to say that there are some ideas that, okay, short of a program, uh, have been going around regarding Cepo uh, Cambiario, the you know, foreign exchange controls, the type of uh, exchange of regime uh, to eliminate uh, uh, protectionism that has made us isolated from the world, not vis-a-vis -vis Europe or the U.S. We're isolated. Uh, our trade policies are... Uh, isolated from Uruguay and Chile. We, we, we don't trade. Uh, we, we don't invest. And so that goes in the way for a proxy, if you want, of a, of a platform, perhaps. Do we have another question from the audience? Something you've been burning to ask? Well, while you ponder, I'm going to throw one question to the entire panel. Um, Professor Seamus, you, you ended your initial presentation holding out hope. And hope is always the last thing in Pandora's box. Everything else has come out. We have hope at the end. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about your sense of hope, maybe flesh that out a little bit more. And if I could ask the other panelists also, if you see hope, hope for the truth, hope for change, uh, hope for Argentina's future in, from your perspective as well. So I go first? You go first. Hope. Um, I've, I've, uh, th there is a pretty strong tradition that uh, Argentine politicians uh, tours to the U.S. stopped by Georgetown. So over the years, I've had a chance of speaking with uh, members of Congress, leaders of business community, uh, civil society leaders, all these groups that foundations put together, the American Chamber of Commerce, you name it. Uh, one of the things that always surprised me was uh, the level of civility, camaraderie, moreover, among them, people of different parties, except different parties, except the government's faction, which is not a party either, but it's a faction, let's put it that way. And that gives me hope. 
everybody tells me, well, that, even they joke, like, you know, well, we're such, such good friends because we're outside of the country, but <laughs> in Congress we kill one another. <laughs> Which is sort of a good way of putting it, but it's, 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 it's really, you know, uh, something that calls my attention. One would expect, well, with that uh, culture, the culture of uh, animosity, uh, acrimony, that, that the, the, the political debate that is, you know, uh, everybody who, whoever thinks different is an enemy, someone to be eliminated, that's, that's, that's the, mm. the message. That is, you know, gives me hope. And it also gives me hope, the, the negative, if you want, the, the negative hypothesis here, which is that the country cannot continue like this. Uh, and, 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 and most leaders, and that includes Daniel Scioli, who is the, country, the, the candidate that represents the government. Even he and his people, uh, who also stopped by Georgetown, realize that the country has to change. There is a, a, a way of doing politics mm -hmm. that has to change drastically uh, we the need to recover to lower the volume mm -hmm. of the political uh, rhetoric and and bring it back to to a, to a place of, of democratic civility and that's not too much uh, certainly in terms of programs and policies and a vision for the future and all of that but it may be a beginning Mm -hmm. I agree with uh, the, the feeling in Washington is, has been for quite some time, uh, even when Sergio Massa was candidate, now he's sort of, you know, he's not a candidate anymore, but sort of Massa, it was a three-way race, Massa, Macri, Scioli, uh, and the feeling has always been, well, whoever wins, Argentina is going to improve. Uh, and I agree with that. I, I tend to agree with that. So uh, that's my hope. It's not much, but it's, you know, something. If I related specifically to the Nisman case, I would say that when Alberto took the AMIA case, there had been no hope. People were just devastated by the fact that 10 years after the terror attack, no one knew anything. Mm -hmm. And thanks to Alberto, everything changed. And suddenly, a, a very heroic and brave figure could immediately change the whole tide and started uh, presenting new evidence and rebuilding what had happened. I think that to, uh, relating to the Nisman case, we are in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. In the short term, there is no possibility because the people who are complaining about the facts, the fact that there is no evidence to prove the, his murder, are the same people who destroyed all the evidence. So therefore, there's no way <laughs> under this government to solve any case. What we need is a change of government, and that could happen in the short term. But then we need people who have the moral stature and, and are brave enough to start changing the tide, changing the, the way things are done. And you can always hope for that because Argentina is a country of very intelligent people, usually ver people who are ready to commit themselves to something that se seems plausible. Now it doesn't, but in one year time it could. Mm. Very good. Um, I need to say that I have hope because I love my country. I live in Argentina and I really want to return there. But if I need to say what are the parts of my country that make me to have some hope, is the people, is society. Mm -hmm. We have a very dynamic society, a very fight, fighting society. We have people, young people that is committed to politics and have beliefs and want to change things. 
And this is why I have uh, good expectation about the future. Mm -hmm. Are there other questions from the audience? If not, I think that's a wonderful place to end because it reminds us of the humanity that underlies this story, of the humanity of the Argentinian people and the fact that we have some hope that uh, even with some bad news now, things can get better. Thank you all very much. <laughs>